Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And also, our special guest, we have... Uh, I'm Mike Mason. Hello. And in today's episode, we are looking at how Lovecraft used the occult in his work, and how this has shaped Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Some pretty fun stuff at the end of August. That's rapidly approaching. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be heading off to Providence. Well, I mean, this is going out, yeah, early August. So, yes, in not long. A couple of weeks from the time of release. And all four of us will be there. So if you're a Necronomicon, do uh, drop us a note and say hi. Yeah, well, Kersim will be at Necronomicon. Uh, We uh, made by myself, uh, uh, Nick Nicario, uh, who... uh, does all the layout and uh, formatting for all the Call of Cthulhu books, and uh, also James Lauder, uh, our fiction editor at Curzium, and also Lynn Hardy. We'll be there, and um, we'll be uh, running some games, uh, stuff in the uh, the booth, uh, doing some panels, and saying hello. So, uh, if you want to come and say hello, come, pop along to the uh, Curzium booth, and uh, we'll. Some of us will be there most of the time. And Scott, I understand you've been on. Fictoplasm. What's that yes. all about? Yeah, yeah. I meant to mention this last time we recorded, but then completely forgot. So our good friend Ralph Lovegrove does this fantastic podcast called Fictoplasm, where he, he sort of does something that's a little similar to what we do sometimes, where he talks about works of fiction, science fiction, literary fiction, horror fiction. He's, he's fairly broad in his, his range, and how they tie in with role-playing, how they might influence role-playing games or vice versa. And so uh, he did an episode, well, very conveniently, about The King in Yellow, particularly about how a game like Call of Cthulhu might have developed in the early 80s had Lovecraft not existed or been forgotten, and Chambers had been the driving force of weird fiction. And so uh, he and I basically talked for about an hour about such things, imagined such a world, and had a grand old time. Marvellous. And now on to our main topic, Lovecraft and the Occult, part one. Yeah, this is going to be a two-part episode because it's a big topic. And fundamentally, what we're going to try to do is look at how the occult influenced Lovecraft's work and and by extension Call of Cthulhu and then in turn how uh, Lovecraft's work and the Cthulhu mythos influenced the occult in its wake. It's a, a really kind of weird thing. We'll also be digging into a little bit about how the occult school works in Call of Cthulhu and about how we might use the occult in general in our scenarios. One thing I do want to make clear, though, is that none of us are academic experts on the occult, uh, already experts of any kind in this field. Speak I mean, we, for yourself. We, we, all know, we all know bits. We all know bits. But we will almost certainly make sins of omission where we will get things wrong. But our focus here is not in providing an academic discourse about the occult, but in exploring how we can use all this stuff in Call of Cthulhu. So please bear that in mind before you send us angry emails. But do send the angry emails, just bear it in mind before. Just address them to Scott Dorwood. Yeah. So, what is the occult? Well, this is a good question. I have a a couple of definitions written down. Um, The occult, knowledge of the hidden or paranormal as opposed to knowledge of facts, in brackets, science. (laughs) I believe you'll find it's from the Latin occultus, clandestine, hidden or secret. Obviously, I knew that. Well, of course. Mm. I, knew, I knew you weren't you know, saying it out loud, but you know, I knew you knew it. But the occult is a fairly broad thing. I mean, there are occult traditions in pretty much every culture in the world. I mean, probably every culture in the world. But we are going to be focusing very much on the Western occult tradition, partly because it's the, you know, the thing that we know the most about, but mostly because it's uh, what Lovecraft wrote about. 
and what is primarily there in Call of Cthulhu. I mean, there, there are plenty of strands of other occult stuff in other Call of Cthulhu works. I mean, for example, Mike, I mean, we played Lynn Hardy's Children of Fear as a playtest recently, and she put loads of interesting occult stuff in there from Tibetan traditions and Chinese traditions and Indian traditions. But none of that's really there in Lovecraft. No, I mean, it's, it's the Eastern, as you might turn the Eastern traditions of occult that kind of feature in The Children of Fear. Uh, but as you say, the Western tradition, which kind of, you know, goes back to the 16th century, you know, the kind of occult sciences, astrology, divination, natural magic, that kind of stuff, which is really what we're talking about here in terms of, you know, how that's then grown over the years in terms of what we understand occult to mean or be about. And back then in the 16th century, those things you just mentioned, were they divorced from religion at the time? Oh, I and mean, that is a big topic. I mean, th there are all sorts of different strands of the occult that you can pick up on, some of which were considered perhaps to be parts of uh, the natural sciences. So mm. things like alchemy and astrology, you know, were for a long time conflated with what we now consider to be science. And also, you know, a lot of it was very much tied in, tied in with religion. I mean, whether you consider this to be because it's religious in nature or because in those times it was a sort of safe mask for it to wear, so things like Rosicrucianism, um, you know, the idea that it used a lot of Christian symbolism, you know, might have been a way of just making it palatable to a very Christian time. Because the occult now seems very much opposed to Christianity. It almost seems to push against Christianity in many aspects. So now when people... You know, the general conception of the occult is it's kind of the opposite of Christianity. Yeah, but you see, I think mm. that'd be wrong to assume that because, I mean, uh, traditionally, um, it wasn't clearly divorced from Christianity or organised religion. I mean, John Dee, um, you know, Enochian magic is, is based on, you know, Christian values and Christian uh, learning. And um, so, you know, some occult strands are very clearly kind of directly linked into Christianity and belief in, in angels and so on, which are divine in terms of a Christian view. So, I mean, it, you can divorce it in terms of some people can divorce, you know, occult to mean non-Christian stuff, but equally it can be as well. It, it's mm. a very complicated and layered subject. There is, um, I think it's Leviticus that outlines the seven forbidden arts mainly different types of divination. They were collected and thoroughly examined in a 15th century uh, grimoire by, probably going to butcher the pronunciation name, Johann Hartlieb, wherein he, he described the Book of All Forbidden Arts. They were all permitted particularly to divination. That was the one thing that mm. the Bible really objected to. So you've got palmistry, necromancy, aeromancy, pyromancy, hydromancy, spatulomancy. Spatulomancy. Uh, the very... Very one particular bone. It was pretty, um, just their completed way of uh, reading bones by throwing them on the ground and seeing the patterns they made. Well, it didn't involve flipping pancakes or anything then. No, but just the, just the uh, well, whatever they call the shoulder blade. It sounds like uh, some shimmering on their armies. Scapular. Probably. Well, again, well, my pronunciation gets butchered a lot, a lot of the way. And also geomancy as well. They were the, I'm sure there the is seven. a brand of you know, divination that in, involves kitchen implements. The word occult mm. gets used in different variations. So occultism whilst it sounds the same thing, it actually tends to mean something else, or it means something aligned to it, so it tends to deal, occultism tends to deal with uh, what you might term occult traditions, um, things like, you know, magical order, so, you know, hermetic order of the Golden Dawn, spiritualism, theosophy, that, that kind of stuff tends to fall under the term of occultism. Yeah, apparently the, the term occultism was introduced to, in, to English by Helena Blavatsky of mm. the Theosophy Movement. Uh, in the late 19th century uh, and is used for all manner of practices so just to fire off a few spiritualism theosophy anthroposophy like you said hermetic order of the golden dawn new age stuff even yoga and so on yeah i think we'll, we'll dig into a lot of these things in particular talking about how they're used in lovecraft how they're used in call of cthulhu but before we dig into that however let, let's talk a little bit about lovecraft himself because lovecraft was a self-professed materialist. He did not believe in the supernatural at all. He was not religious. He certainly didn't believe in the occult. But on the other hand, you know, we, we tend to think of uh, the, the stuff in his work as being very sort of magical, being very rooted in the occult. Uh, he did actually specify a lot of what he did and didn't believe and how it related to his fiction in a letter to Clark Ashton Smith. Dear C.A.S. Clark Ashton Smith, no. I've never read any of the jargon of formal occultism, since I have always thought that weird writing is more effective if it avoids the hackneyed suppositions and popular cult formula. 
I am indeed an absolute materialist so far as actual belief goes, and not a shred of credence in any form of supernaturalism, religion, spiritualism, transcendentalism, metapsychosis or immortality. It may be, though, that I could get the germ of some good ideas from the current patter of the psychic lunatic fringe, and I have frequently thought of getting some of the junk sold at an occultist bookshop on 46th Street. The trouble is that it costs too damn much for me in my present state. How much is the brochure you have just been reading? If any of these cracked brain cults have free booklets and literature with suggested descriptive matter, I wouldn't mind having my name on their sucker lists. The idea that black magic exists in secret today, or that hellish antique rites still survive in obscurity, is one that I have used and shall use again. When you see my new tale, The Horror at Red Hook, you will see what use I make of the idea in connections with the gangs of young loafers and herds of evil-looking foreigners that one sees everywhere in New York. As an aside, never let racism <laughs> crop into your letters if you can't help it. Uh, yeah, crikey. Uh, 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 um, uh, good luck finding a Lovecraft letter that doesn't have Well, exactly. Um, he goes on to say, I have a nest of devil worshippers and devotees of Lilith in one of the squalid Brooklyn neighbourhoods and describe the marvels and, and the horrors ensued when these ignorant inheritors of hideous ceremonies found a learned and initiated man to lead them. I bedeck my tale with incantations copied from the magic article in the ninth edition of Britannica, but I'd like to draw on less obvious sources if I knew of the right reservoirs to tap. Do you know of any good works on magic and dark mysteries which might furnish fitting ideas and formula? For example, are there any good translations of any medieval necromancers with directions for raising spirits, invoking Lucifer, and that sort of thing? One hears a lot of names, uh, such as uh, Albertus Magnus, uh, Elphias Levi, Nicholas Flamel, and co. But most of us are appallingly ignorant of them. I know I am, but I fancy you must be better informed. Don't go to any trouble, but sometime I'd be infinitely grateful for more or less brief lists of magical books, ancient and medieval preferred, in English or English translations. Meanwhile, let me urge you, as I did over a year ago, to read The Witch Cult in Western Europe by Margaret A. Murray. It ought to be full of inspiration for you. I, I find this a fascinating letter because I mean, not only does it underline the fact that he didn't believe in any of this stuff, but it also shows how poorly versed he really was in it that he he, he did what I, th I think a lot of us do in that he went to a source in this case Encyclopedia Britannica because Wikipedia wasn't around at the time you know picked out a few names and used those as colour in his stories uh, you know, th there is no occult depth in there there is window dressing picking up on one name that cropped up on there was Flamel a real person? yes, yes. oh yeah yeah. Yeah. He, he, okay. yeah he he was the person who was credited with uh, creating the Philosopher's Stone take yeah. your bingo card Harry Potter fans. Yes. Yeah, I thought I'd heard the name somewhere in fiction. Yeah. So I think this is a great lesson for us as scenario writers that you can just pick out a few little bits to spice up your scenario. You don't have to put that much in for it to have a fairly convincing feel or to, to give a flavour of some historical relevance. And also I mean, the fact that the occult is such a murky field that everyone believes something different, has got different opinions on how things work, has got a different opinion about the history of occultism. Yes, you may get details wrong, but every other bugger out there gets stuff wrong. Every other bugger, you know, gets, uh, contradicts each other. So, you know, if you do that, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to necessarily decrease the very similitude of what you're writing. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you are creating a fiction not a sim, you know, simulacra completely of the, the real world in that sense. I've got a little bit of a follow-on to that Lovecraft letter, actually, uh, thinking about it. I've, um, Daniel Harms uh, wrote an article in the 14 Times back in 2004 um, talking about Lovecraft and a cult. And there's a short quote I've got here which follows on from that letter. In fact, that Lovecraft did actually obtain some more well-known occult references after that letter oh. before he died. Lovecraft was at least somewhat familiar with the literature of occultism, especially in his later years. At the time of his death, his library contained such works as Lewis Spence's Encyclopedia of Occultism, Sir Walter Scott's Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft, Camille Flammarion's Haunted Houses, and a variety of work, works on ghosts, folklore, and mythology. 
This was not the end of the matter, as Lovecraft also borrowed a number of occult books, as well as Charles Fort's Book of the Damned and New Lands uh, from libraries and his friends, most notably Herman uh, Koenig of New York City. Lovecraft then was hardly an authority on, on the esoteric and uncanny, but he had some basic knowledge that he incorporated into some of his tales, well, certainly some of his later tales, given timing of this. So do we see Lovecraft taking any of this uh, material and actually building a story around it, or is he having a story and then just adding a bit of this occult history into it just to add a bit of verisimilitude? The main use of it is your latter point. It's verisimilitude. It's mm. um, you know he'll, he'll he'll string a list of books that are seen on the bookshelf, you know of which you know, the Necronomicon's one perhaps, and and something else maybe you know Bobby Howard named or Clark Ashton Smith named. But then there'll be three or four real occult texts, you know, and you can easily find you know uh, lists of real occult texts that Lovecraft used in his stories. You know you can find them on the internet. I've got one here, but that's I think is the baseline for what he did. But I think you know certainly worth thinking about what else he did to sort of move on further than that well i think there's only one story of his that is really i mean thoroughly granted in the occult i mean plenty of them use occult elements and like i say he is as color but i think there's only one that, that very specifically draws upon strands of classical occultism and that's the case of charles dexter ward mm. i mean that is a tale of necromancy of alchemy it uses a lot of I think research that Lovecraft did into these old works to try to bring that story to life appropriately enough. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, he very much refers to old alchemical texts as being part of Joseph Kerwin's library. This whole procedure of raising people from their essential salts as being, you know, an alchemical procedure. Yeah, how much of this actually ties in with alchemy is debatable. Because a lot of it depends on what you consider alchemy to be. I, th this is something that you know, we may touch upon a few times in this, which is this idea of, of what magic actually is. So alchemy is a particularly murky one. Protochemistry, I've heard it described as pretty much, uh, at least in scientific terms, as being fairly accurate. And, and yes, there very much is that side of it. That there was people you know, mucking about with chemicals, trying to produce elixirs or trying to turn lead into gold. But there's also the idea that all of this stuff was metaphor and that they refer to certain psychological processes or spiritual practices which were supposed to transmute the base element of human consciousness, the lead, into gold, this ascended cosmic divine consciousness. I'll just take the physical gold, please. <laughs> but but, but it, it does mean that there are a lot of alchemical texts out there which are there as symbolism and metaphor rather than actual chemical instructions. On the other hand, there's probably plenty out there which are, as you say, protochemistry. You know, we see touches of it, obviously, in many of the Lovecraft stories. You know, the Dunwich Horror is just so common parlance for us. You know, they basically use a, you know, a, a rite from a, a magical tome to dispel and, and so on, deal with the, you know, the horror in Dunwich. There are paraphernalia around it. You know, they create the dust of Ibn Ghazi, which effectively could be alchemy. And so it touches on things in light, but he doesn't go into big detail about it. They, be, they just become devices to enact the, certain elements of the story. And there's Sentinel Hill and the Standing Stones and so on. Yeah. And, and yeah, that is, I think, one of the rare stories in Lovecraft where you have something that's summoned. I mean, there's an element of that, I suppose, in the festival as well with calling the Bayaki. But on the whole, we tend to think of summoning as a fairly big part of what happens in Call of Cthulhu. People summon up gods and monsters. But, I mean, that doesn't necessarily happen an awful lot in Lovecraft's stories. Where it does happen, I, I guess there are perhaps some parallels. I mean, you, you've done a lot of research into the Goetia, haven't you, Matt? Oh, yes. So, all about calling forth demons mm -hmm. and striking bargains with them or commanding them to do things. Yeah, and that each one has a particular gift that it can bestow upon you and that you have to make your summoning under very particular circumstances with very particular items. You have to have the right seals, you have to make the strike the right bargains, each one has particular behaviour. Yeah, it's uh, indeed a whole book on it, The Lesser Key Solomon the King. But I, I guess there's the idea in Call of Cthulhu that a lot of the time when you summon up creatures is they're, they're there to do kind of one of two things generally, which is, you know, create chaos or bring about the end of time or whatever. Or alternatively, you know, they're there as some form of you know, proxy in combat. They're there to hurt someone else or defend you. If you're thinking about things in terms of classical demonology and the reasons why people would summon stuff up, can you think of any ways in Call of Cthulhu 
where people might summon these entities for other reasons. I remember one instance when we were playing one of the big campaigns, I won't say which one it is because it's a bit of a spoiler of the circumstance, but actually summoning up a creature was pretty much the only way we got out of a situation. Quick, jump on its back and fly the fuck away, because <laughs> that was the only way we could get out of the problem. Was that the we one in. you played with me, Matt? Uh, yeah, I think it was. Right. Yeah. I mean, you seem to do that quite a lot in my games, <laughs> to be honest, so, yeah. Given the kind of expansive nature of a role-playing game, anything is possible. I mean, and certainly it's hinted at in terms of some of the early depictions in, in, in Call of Cthulhu the game, in terms of some of the monsters, where there is a, a kind of a classification in terms of this monster is aligned to this particular mythos entity. There is a kind of um, a subtext there that actually, you know, you're trying to deal with this creature. You could actually summon up its opposition it's its natural enemy to deal with it for you but obviously then you've got to deal with what you've just summoned after it's dealt with your the current problem there's those kind of things where you could you could see happening in the game potentially with the investors with the right resources and the wrong ideas but in terms of you know the, the kinds of things that a medieval magician might summon up a demon for and gaining knowledge gaining power gaining wealth do you see that kind of mapping at all onto this idea of summoning Call of Cthulhu, or is, well, is mean, that inherently well, something well, no, different? I, I, no, I think, I think that's exactly all the same thing. I mean, you know, Gatsby and the Great Race is all about a spell gone wrong, which is then used primarily to try and generate money, isn't it, is it if, mm. I'm, if I'm yeah, remembering yeah. correctly? So I think, you know, in Call of Cthulhu, it's, it, it comes down to what, what we tend to... The core of a lot of the Call of Cthulhu stories and scenarios is, is what some human does with mythos, knowledge, or power. And then it becomes, you know, whatever is the tick box for that human, whether it's avarice, power, accumulation of knowledge and so on. Yeah, there are a couple of mechanical benefits for I can think of for summoning up gods directly. Um, maybe not just to sit them down and say, oh, you teach me stuff. Mm. Um, but there are some more physical interactions you can have with some of them. Thinking of drinking Chubnagrath's milk or one of the avatars of Neartholotep, which happened in a game I ran fairly recently, they summon up the whole man, sleep with him, and gain five power permanently. Okay. So, and survive the experience. Yeah. Oh, just as, you know, I don't like you lot in the village, I'm just going to summon something to kill them easily. Kill I think you, you just have to look at, like you said, Mike, look at humans and think, in the real world, what are their motivations? What are they trying to do? Well, if they had the power to summon a Vayaki or whatever, or a ghoul, well, they'd probably use it to do that thing they wanted to do in the first place. Like you say, well, whether it be yeah, just and that, and that all comes down to how well the they're prepared to have a binding spell to make the creature do it or not. You know, well, they don't need to know about <laughs> binding spells, do they? Duckkin are really good at doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but while we're talking about this sort of ritual magic aspect, I mean, this may be a big question, and it's one I've never quite personally been able to get a handle on. But what fundamentally is magic in Call of Cthulhu, in the Cthulhu mythos? You know, a lot of it does seem to tie in with that whole demonological aspect of calling up entities and bargaining with them and so on. But you have all sorts of other spells in there. This is a mythology that is fundamentally about alien entities from beyond. So how and why does magic work in this materialistic, mechanistic uh, do, you, do you mean world? what's magic in Lovecraft's worlds or do you mean what's magic in the game called cthulhu like, let, let, let's let's start with the first and then move on to the second because yeah. they, they're probably quite different things well i'm, I'm not sure i think they're quite similar actually but with, oh, with, okay with, with lovecraft's work it seems like as we've discussed before what it is depends on what the story is because there's mm. not necessarily a continuity um, but certainly if we look at the dunwich horror it was about you know opening some kind of gateway to let the, the old ones through so they could walk the earth and, and so on uh, and there was summoning, you know, there was some uh, basically kind of interbreeding with some otherworldly deity and then other spells in, in other stories. I mean, some yeah. of the spells, you know, I made the um, the Vorish sign. sign. I mean, yeah. is that a spell or is it just some sort of evil eye sign? You know, we, we have well, a it, spell Presumably it has story. an effect, so therefore it's... But is know, it just a folklore thing, I mean? Because, yeah. you know, I think they say I made the Vorish sign... Is that like crossing your fingers for good but luck? But isn't this, this is all? It's all the same thing. I mean, isn't it? In Lovecraft stories, mm. and in his personal views, we, we've already seen that Lovecraft doesn't have any truck with the occult. Mm. You know, it's all hokum as far as he's concerned. And in his stories, it's the same thing because in in, in his stories, it's science. It's it's alien science or, or hyper science, however you want to term it, seen through human perception. A human perception views that as magic or something they can't understand. They don't view it as science because it's beyond their level of comprehension of science at the time. 
and there's and the game treats things like that as well. We 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 do in the game. We don't necessarily say this is factually this is this and this. What we say is the way that we talk about the mythos in the game, the way that it's portrayed in our scenarios, is all through the the framing of human perception. Hence, monster names. We don't, you know, I, I don't expect Bayaki call themselves Bayaki. We call things in the frame of human reference. So a deep one doesn't call, isn't going to call, oh, I'm going to go and hang out with my deep one mates. No, they wouldn't call each other deep ones, but humans call them deep ones because they live in the sea and they're from the deep. It's a human perception of it. And, and that's how I view all of Lovecraft's stuff. His, his, mm. his fundamental viewpoint is this is alien, this is unhuman. This is beyond human comprehension to whatever level of degree. But we view it through human perception. So we call it the occult or we call it magic or we call it black magic or rites and things like that. So when, when they're using magic, in inverted commas, then in Call of Cthulhu, in, in Lovecraft stories or in the game, they're sort of tapping into some sort of level that's sort of based in some sort of alien science that we yeah, can't some comprehend. Sort of, yeah, dimensional hypergeometry or whatever it means. The stars are right, the alignments, uh, the angles were right or they're wrong. The words, you know, have a have a hyper meaning beyond language. You know, maths plays a role perhaps, you know, whatever it may be. These are all pointers Lovecraft puts in his stories. All these things are named in Lovecraft stories, but he doesn't go on to explain. Oh, we, I mention angles because that's a you know human mm. perception of magic. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean there are certainly other examples as well in Lovecraft of what appear to be magical effects, which he describes very much in scientific terms. So yeah, there is that whole idea in Charles Dexter Ward of raising people from their essential souls. There's also in the thing on the doorstep what Asnath Waite does with swapping minds with people, which is described very much in the story as being a type of mesmerism is not there as sorcery it's like she's sort of hypnotising people or at least she's portraying it as such and as a result I mean Lovecraft is almost portraying it in you know pseudo-scientific terms yeah but and we also got to remember he's writing technically horror stories and hey guess what occult and occult, occult paraphernalia are more interestingly scary than science yeah. in that sense and t- mm. certainly in terms of when Lovecraft was writing it you know, he wasn't, he wasn't writing about the scary science of nuclear bombs and, and technology and so on. You know, he's writing within that context. And at the end of the day, a good ghost story is about spooks and strange signs and rituals and all that kind of stuff. It isn't about, I created the right hyperdimensional angles and I've created a void into a, it's a hyperdimension. Slightly less scary than saying there's a ghost in the house. But we- I, I guess what interests me about Lovecraft's approach is that the foundations of it are fundamentally materialistic, that he may use these trappings, but that it is a very different tradition than the, the kind of occult horror that came before. Oh yes. In the, the, there's not necessarily any supernatural cause for any of this. There's there's no supernatural power that it's drawing upon. It is higher powers, but these higher powers are just beings like us to some extent, but just vaster, more powerful, you know, multi-dimensional entities. But his characters use common terms of reference. We yeah. use we find I'm looking in this book for a spell. I'm not looking for a formula of hypergeometry. I'm looking for a spell. It's we use common human references. Well, what things are there in the supernatural that Lovecraft doesn't use? Because, I mean, he has ghosts, he has ghouls, he has so on. I'm just wondering, you know, we're, we're saying all this stuff is... He's made it more realistic, but what hasn't he taken? How is it so, not supernatural? So, let, I mean, let's take an example then of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. So, when uh, Joseph Kirkwood is raised from the dead from the essential salts, there, this is very much a materialistic thing that it is his remains that are brought back, and there is somehow his memory and personality that is physically contained within what's left of him. That it's not like calling to the afterlife uh, you know, in a spiritualist kind of way and contacting him from beyond the grave because there, there is no soul there, there's nothing beyond there, there's just these remains that have been raised up. Do you see a big difference Matt? I mean Lovecraft had a very materialistic view but I think in his stories he was happy to have all sorts of strange supernatural stuff, sometimes you know, it made them very advanced races so they used science so it seemed like you know, you could sort of say, oh, it's not supernatural, it's advanced science that the older things are using. Old Amigo, there's plenty, yeah. plenty of examples. Yeah, they're, they're alien scientists, they're very intelligent because they understand the universe better than us. It's a weird, almost, opposition that I remember that he was very much opposed to using the trappings of gothic fiction, hmm. which includes things like your ghosts, your ghouls, your vampires, your werewolves, all, all those kind of things. So in terms of that supernatural, that he very much pushes to one side, but he's quite happy to embrace 
thinking of Dexter Ward alchemy and so on, and those ritual aspects of spell casting in inverted commas. So yeah, it, it's weird that he picks and chooses which bits he wants to use. But well, I, I guess it's the fact that alchemy is couched in terms of science. It's probably also worth differentiating you know, Lovecraft's mythos fiction from, say, some of his earlier stuff, where you do have stories which are pretty well traditional ghost stories. I, I can't remember what it's called, the one where the guy is imprisoned in a coffin and has his feet cut off or broken off. Oh, yeah. Things like that. I mean, there, there are you know, early ghost stories, but we don't consider those mythos stories, I assume. Well, no, I mean, let's just get back to reality in, in the sense of Lovecraft wrote no cohesive canon across any of his stories, for yeah. one. So none of his stories should be considered as a cohesive whole. And secondly, he was a jobbing writer. And like any jobbing writer, if you get an idea about a vampire, you think he's cool, even if you're not really a big fan of vampires, you're probably going to write it. You know, in his earlier stories, it, it tended to be more familiar tropes in that sense. And it's only as he matures as a writer and matures his thinking in terms of uh, the stories and, and the ideology behind them in terms of materialism and nihilism that you start to see that progression into his stories and in his stories if he feels he wants to kind of give a more credence to the kind of the scientific background to the supernatural or the other he does so and in other mm. stories he said no it's not, it's, that's not working for this story I shall not say that I just it's magic or whatever. And the fact that he uses alchemy well that's not science either. Well, except as we, we mentioned earlier, it came out of the natural sciences at the time. You know, the people so who were practising, yeah. who were mixing chemicals and, and doing yeah. all this stuff, considered it science in the same way that they might, they might consider astrology science. Yeah, but it's not a science, is it? Oh, well, I mean, we wouldn't think so now. But back then it was. But back then they considered now, it to be... Yes. as a matter of fact, it's not science. Yes. Right. I, I'm, I'm not disputing that, but I'm, I'm thinking in terms of... It's just couched in the terms of mock science. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm thinking of it in terms of the internal logic and the, the rationale behind what it is in the fiction. Mm. Well, that reminds me, I've got some gold boiling on the stove. I need to go and get, <laughs> get back yeah. to <laughs> But there's the certain elements of that you could argue that parallel the transition between alchemy and chemistry. There are certain bits of astrology that you could say were mm. the foundations of the observation of astronomical movements yeah. that would make mm. their way into astronomy. So it's just they've evolved. Yes, exactly that, yeah. Each history deals with whatever the human context is and of understanding is what we're dealing with in. And in that time, that was science. Now we have a different context for that. Yeah. And we didn't get to the moon based on astrology, though. <laughs> I don't know. Did we get there? Well, did we? <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> Conspiracy theory quashed. <laughs> but there are also some people who you know, hold similar views about the foundations of psychiatry and psychology, that a lot of that perhaps came out of say, Kabbalism, and the idea that the tree of life in, in Kabbalism is an attempt to map the human consciousness and the, the transformations and, and modes uh, that it can undergo. I imagine there could be an argument. It could be traced back to the humours, you know, about different humours and quantities within your body will affect your personality and mood in different ways. You, you need know, to balance them. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there could be a logical argument to trace things far back that way. But, I mean, a lot of this comes down to the fact that these are perhaps... Different different and primitive ways of expressing certain concepts that we now view in very different ways. That, I think, maps on very nicely to this whole idea of what exactly magic and the Cthulhu mythos is, putting these different lenses, these different glosses on, you know, the, perhaps the alien science behind it. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see a cohesive answer to that. I think it's a role-playing game. There's a lot of spells in D&D that kind of have some parallels in Call of Cthulhu. You know, if we want a spell to heal somebody or we want a spell to summon a ghoul or we want a spell to, to do this we put one in so i don't think there's a cohesive hold to it necessarily do, do you think though that that actually does tie in with the the foundations of what lovecraft wrote if you you're know, used to playing D D and you want to put a healing spell into call of cthulhu being call of cthulhu you might make it a bit nastier and put some you know price on it like you have to sacrifice some small animal or something it would still fundamentally be a healing spell do you think that really ties in with the way that magic and the occult and the like are depicted in Lovecraft's fiction? There are degrees of it, yeah. I think there are degrees. I mean, you know, the whole, in Call of Cthulhu, the kind of classification of magic in terms of folk magic was my attempt to suggest that if you take magic as fundamentally an alien science... Uh, and humans have somehow managed to tap into that by unwittingly understanding that certain 
tones of voice, gestures, paraphernalia can actually tap into other dimensional action, then folk magic, as in healing, one could logically assume that a watered-down version learnt by some human years and years ago may be imparted by some mythos deity had put this sort of spell that actually manipulates flesh in some kind that was learnt many th- you know thousands of years ago and over the centuries it has been passed down watered down partially forgotten remembered remade and so now what we have is manipulation of physical matter that we term as healing but in terms of your average guy who picks up a spell book and sees this thing, says, oh, this, this will heal thy flesh if thy poor is the, the blood of the rat upon it. That all they're seeing is, oh, I kill a rat and I get healed. They don't need to understand the science behind it. But, but in terms of contextually, that's my view on where these spells, if you want them in the game, can come from. If I were to do something like that in a Call of Cthulhu game, I'd be more inclined to put it there as a sort of trap that you do perhaps have this spell that someone comes across in a mythos tome that is that you know the healing of the flesh or whatever but there is something i think more inherently lovecraftian that comes out of it perhaps you know some strange transformation of the flesh that happens as a result yeah but it's, it's just going back to the nature of the game the nature of the game is a horror game and most things aren't for free in call of cthulhu there's a cost to virtually everything you do in Call of Cthulhu, there's some form of cost. Sanity and at the very least. Sanity at the very least. And in spells, we often see that across all spells, there's, there's normally some sort of, and it's either a sanity and magic point cost in the, the baseline, but as you say, Scott, you know, something like something that seems overtly beneficial, like a healing spell or foreknowledge of an event. Keepers are always advised throughout all the lore in Call of Cthulhu rule books and guidance and the grimoire and all the so on to temper that with some kind of payoff of, that kind of goes back to the core of the game, which is horror, horror and revelation in that sense. So, you know. So, yeah. what other Lovecraft stories do we see any things that we might interpret as occult practices that people do today? One of the big ones would be the dreams in the witch house. Maybe not contemporary occult practices, but you know, certainly you know, draws very much upon witch law. The whole idea that you had witches back in the, the late 17th century who supposedly made deals with Satan or other entities or demons, had familiars and gained power as a result. And they were signing the book, I think yes. that's in you know, that classic kind of witchcraft thing of signing the devil's book. That's in Dreams in the Witch House, am it I right? Is, yeah. 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 yeah, so he, yeah. he draws upon that. You mentioned dreams, I thought you were about to mention the dreamlands. There's the practice of astral projection where you can either leave your body in your dream state and you know walk around the real world or you know go to other worlds you know other planets or even to other dimensions or you could take some drugs and and go and meet the machine elves well that's yeah. a same yeah i, I, I think it's all in the same ballpark it's another vehicle you know, for that. A big, yeah. you know, ultimately we talk about transcendence in terms of altered states of consciousness which yeah. is technically is a dreamland basically an altered state of consciousness because your mind is going somewhere else or experiencing something in a different manner to what you normally perceive it to be. The use of ritual uh, and or drugs or some form of medium. I mean, indeed, in the dreamlands, in the game, there are different ways to get to the dreamlands. You don't just have to dream it. You mm-hmm. can take, is it, I can't remember, is it Black Lotus or something? There's a drug, you know, a get-out-of-jail drug that can get you adventures into the dreamlands if you want them to do it quickly before they fall asleep, you know. Hash was used in Dunsany. Yeah. yeah, You've got different forms of astral projection as well in, in mythos fiction. Now, not in Lovecraft himself, but Frank Belknap Long's The Hands of Tindalos. You've got the Platonian drug, which uh, sends the consciousness through time. And I guess there's parallel there between what the, uh, the great race of Yith do. But this idea that, yeah, that consciousness is something that is divorced from the physical form... I guess that's also there in uh, The Thing on the Doorstep, that consciousness is something that can shift between bodies... Yeah, well, we, say- again, we see it in in the um, in the game turns crawling ones. You know, consciousness transfers into earthworms and the like. Mm. That consciousness isn't a mutable thing in terms of its physical manifestation. Yeah, and it's interesting because that is, I'd say, not a very materialist thing. Maybe that's more down to modern philosophy. This whole idea that you you, you see a lot of you know, philosophical discussion these days about the idea of uploading your consciousness to a computer. Is what results there you? Is it just a duplicate of you? Is there actually any continuity of consciousness? Well, I knew we'd get there eventually. We've just connected Tron and Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Star Trek, but okay. I was going uh, admittedly not on the 
technological route, but thinking that this mirrors a conversation we had regarding Lord of Illusions. Flesh is a prison and magic sets you free. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking that, but Paul, Blavatsky and Theosophy, you're a big fan of that, aren't you? Well, thank you, Mike. I'm not sure I'd say I'm a big fan of it. I'm kind of intrigued by it. It seems to be something that is out of the spotlight now, that in the late 19th century, earlier 20th century was really big and is referenced by Lovecraft. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, he, mentions, yeah. Yeah, he mentions the, like, the Ascended Masters or something well, he calls, in Tibet. He calls, he, call them, them? he calls them the Deathless Chinamen. Yeah, the underlying right. masters of the uh, cult of Cthulhu. Yeah. Right. Blavatsky was uh, a Russian emigre living um, in, in America, and she set up the Theosophical Movement, and she purported that she had communications with these ascended masters in Tibet. And also, I know that there's reference to them being part of a white lodge, which I can't help but think... Uh, Lynch must have taken for Twin Peaks. Uh, we see, you know, the Black Lodge and also in the newest series, the White Lodge. Also, Blavatsky in her books, Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, where she kind of lays all this stuff out, uh, she discusses all these root races, that the, there's seven races of, of mankind and we're kind of slowly moving through them and at present we're in the fifth one. We're all going to recognise the earlier ones. There's the Hyperboreans, Lemuria... And Atlantis, mm. uh, the Atlanteans, uh, who we all know, as she says, built Stonehenge. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and this was like late 19th century, you know, just before all the pulp writers were writing about Hyperborea and Lemuria. And, and It's almost like a modern analogy of people like watching films or reading horror stories and then going writing Call of Cthulhu stories based on them or inspired by them. <laughs> isn't it? it's, it's kind of strange, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and this whole idea that you mentioned of the Ascended Masters, I mean, there's a parallel there with uh, the origins of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, which was probably the the defining force of 20th century occultism. And uh, that came uh, came about in the late 19th century because McGregor Mathers and, I can't remember the name of the other founder, uh, supposedly got hold of this ancient manuscript written in a cipher and, you know, uh, translated it. And this sort of gave them permission to go off and contact the secret chiefs, the hidden forces behind the occult world, who had to bless the creation of any new occult order. And it was sort of these these almost ascended consciousnesses that watched over the whole thing. And it strikes me in Call of Cthulhu terms that this is something that you you can very much make use of in that these consciousnesses do not have to be human. In mm. a lot of ways, in Call of Cthulhu terms, it works a lot better if they aren't. That perhaps it is Nialathotep you're contacting, or some other you know, ancient force from beyond space and time. Maybe it's malevolent, maybe it's more neutral, but it is a source of power and wisdom you can draw upon. I like okay. the ancient ones from Through the Gates of the Silver Key. These omnipotent beings just sit in limbo and mm. kind of contemplate their own navel. But I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure theosophy was a huge influence on that. Mm. Theosophy is an interesting one in that we talk about hidden masters and all the rest of it. We don't actually mention what core beliefs they had, that kind of mm. thing, and, and yeah. which I think is important to kind of get an understanding of why they uh, might be of interest. You can take what Blavatsky was writing about is, is an attempt to kind of revive knowledge of what they believed a once ancient religion uh, that was found across the world and which will, in their belief, come again and, you know, eclipse the religions that came thereafter so basically it's a kind of revivalism in a sense to a one true religion or truth uh, and of course philosophers did believe in, a, in an absolute single divinity their quest is a quest for knowledge hmm. they're, they're questing to find what is the ultimate original truth to existence in that sense but they weren't a religion so they, they it was based on hinduism and buddhism but they weren't a religion and they did encourage their followers to follow other religions you know around the kind of late 19th 30th 20th century they had tens of thousands of members mm-hmm. of this society it was it was pretty massive it's still um, going today I mean, oh yeah did they have any members who didn't follow religions or was that an essential part oh yeah no i don't think it was an essential part to, to follow mm-hmm. a religion indeed it then led to um, rudolf steiner um, who split away from them? We may well know of Steiner schools. Mm. You know, that comes from Rudolf Steiner, a follower of Theosophy, and then who went on to set up Anthroposophy. And they've got you know dancing therapies, uh, Eurythmy, and he set up biodynamic food growing. With, and what came out of that? We have the organic movement that 
directly came out of Steiner and Theosophy. So, so basically what you're saying there is that organic food is satanic. It's satanic. Be- well, because, it's not because, based because, on because, No, no, no. Be- but in fundamentalist Christianity, anything occult is satanic. So, yeah. Well, but that's it, what I was saying earlier about anything occult being anti-Christian yeah. yes. in, in many people's oh, yeah, eyes. Yeah, the, the, the whole idea that a lot of fundamentalists these days are opposed to, you know, even things like yoga because they consider that to be occult and therefore inherently satanic. My one yeah. takeaway from that, though. There is something truly horrific in what you said because I cannot picture dancing doing anything else than terrify. Oh, well, you, you, you've yeah. kind of with Lovecraft on that one, aren't you? <laughs> hey, but, but, I'm mean, not did, the only one. Did, did the Steiner idea of dancing come at all out of uh, Sufism? And, and the whole idea of whirling dervishes and ecstatic dance as a form of... Um, Ritual ecstasy and, and exactly, uh, progression yeah. to higher states of consciousness. I mean, it's a similar kind of idea. It's, it's not the kind of whirling dervish thing, but, you know, it's practised in Steiner schools and so on, I believe. Because I think that ecstatic side of magic is, is something, again, we sort of see a little bit in Lovecraft. I mean, it's mentioned, for example, as part of the orgiastic rites of the Cthulhu cult in yes. Louisiana. Mm. It's interesting in Lovecraft that he, he sort of takes this very aloof intellectual approach to to magic and to the occult in that the fact that this is an ecstatic rite is inherently wrong well i mean i think that may in part be linked to lovecraft's own personal psychosis and, <laughs> yes. and that kind of thing i think in part but yes uh you know but but he does allude to it you know in the creation of shibnigarath as a effectively a fertility deity you know would be suggestive of the rights for her if you call her her would be um, orgiastic and so on. But if we had these sort of ecstatic orgiastic rites in, in Call of Cthulhu, is there, are there any circumstances in Call of Cthulhu in our games where we consider those to be um, positive things? Or are they always inherently, in that Lovecraftian term, going to be debased? You know, that, the kind of thing that those people do. Again, everything's got layers, isn't it? You know, just like uh, Freemasonry and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, there are levels of initiation and knowledge. And at lower levels, they are... You know, depending on the nature of the organisation inherently at its core, fairly mundane, innocent, helpful societies where, you know, we're all members, I'm going to help you. Yeah, you need a few quid or whatever, or can I get you this contract for a job? You know, helpful societies as they are, you know, revelatory as you go through the degrees and ranks and so on and learn the occult, the secret, the hidden behind the uh, the premises of these organisations. Maybe then you start to get a, an inkling of what they're actually about. You know, the lay member of the Emetic Order of the Silver Twilight thinks they're a, 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 you know, a good organisation to be in. You know, it's helpful. It's, they know, do charitable work, Mike. They're charitable <laughs> workers. However, yeah. you know, when you get to the nth degree and you're hanging out with uh, Carl Stanford and you realise actually it's all about killing most of the planet off because Cthulhu's going to rise because that's your ultimate goal, it's a slightly different proposition. And I think, you know, all of these things are in degrees and levels, aren't they? Mm, I don't know. I think the world might be better off sometimes. <laughs> I mean, we sort of touched upon a couple of times there the idea of magical orders. I mean, these are things that we don't necessarily see that much in Call of Cthulhu. What do we think, but what the fundamental difference between a magical order and a cult is? Well, I I think in game turns there isn't much difference. I mean, I think cults are parlance within the game turns because that was what the game was built around. And Mm -hmm. I think we might term a thing a magical order in terms of how we might use that parlance in, in, in real life. But in game turns, it's a it's a shorthand. It's a cult, isn't it? Yeah, it thing. seems that way. Because I remember first getting the game, and I was looking at the, the early versions of the game and some of the scenarios. And I'm like, what is all this about cults and cultists? Because <laughs> you know it does appear in the Call of Cthulhu story, but like you say, a lot of his stories doesn't feature cults and cultists explicitly. No, but you I'm... could interpret them that way and give them that label, which for game purposes, yeah. it's it's just an easy term. So we, you know, he's the cultist. Yeah, and it's, it's in also in the game terms, it's a way of being able to interact with these cosmic entities on a human level without just turning up and killing your party every five seconds. It also seems like a good PR job. When you say hermetic order, it seems to have a veneer of civilization, yeah. uh, wealth, sophistication, order. Mm. You say cult, and suddenly you've got, hey, crazy people in a Louisiana swamp. Well, people yeah, people in cults don't call themselves cultists, do they? No. Very no. rarely. <clears throat> so no, I wonder how often we should use the term in the game when we're speaking in character as keeper should we use the term cult and cultist very much i don't find myself using those terms no. in game it's in the I, tend to, I tend to be referring to the 
Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight, mm. for, for, exa- for example. I'm referring to the, you know, the, the initiates of the Silver Twilight or the lay members of the Silver Twilight. I don't necessarily say they're a bunch of cultists. Now, when we get to the combat and the players have figured out that they are a bunch of cultists, <laughs> then I might just say, oh, yeah, there's six cultists in here. What are you going to do about it? In terms of atmosphere building, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, there's a cultist over there. You know, yeah. I might... But in terms of you know what we see in the real world and how this might map onto Call of Cthulhu, I think there there is a fundamental difference between a cult and and a magical order. We, I mean, even beyond you know whether you know there's a classist labelling system going on there, which is a cult is fundamentally a religious thing that it's it's about belief. It's not necessarily about. Um, practices that lead you towards specific ends. Whereas a magical order is based around a series of of practices, of techniques that are designed to produce results. You're not performing acts of worship, you're performing rituals that are designed to, in general, sort of transform yourself, produce changes well, in consciousness. Well, it's self-help, isn't it, effectively? Yeah. Effectively, it's a form of self-help. You're, you're either looking mm. to produce some sort of effect that benefits benefits you or another or whatever, or society in general, or you are developing your knowledge and you're looking to learn the secrets of the cosmos and whatnot. But as you say, you're not, you're not doing it because you, you're following a religious practice. It's not a religion. It's a series of scientific formula to some degree pretty much yeah Uh, and that's the difference between a magical order in that sense but it doesn't preclude a magical order from being a semi-religious or having its members believe in a certain religion Um, but it isn't necessary there's a lovely piece of doggerel from Alistair Crowley which he used to sum up his his beliefs which I I, I think sort of sums up that difference nicely which is uh, we place no reliance upon virgin or pigeon. Our method is science, our aim is religion. And so it's the, the, this idea that by following certain set practices, by trying to achieve certain reproducible results through set practices, that you can attain the end results of religion, that transcendence, that touching of the Godhead, that ascension. Yeah, there, yeah there's no, absolutely. But you, you had to do it, Scott. You nearly went through a whole episode of a cult without mentioning Crowley. <laughs> There is a certain degree of crossover from what bits I know of Freemasonry, because one of the Mm. core fundamentals is that they don't care particularly what religion it is, but that you have to have faith in some kind of supreme being. They say, whatever form it takes, we don't mind, but as long as you have that faith. That's how they get you, Scott. Um, (laughs) Matt, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I've brought plenty of books on here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, everyone, it is that time once again when, perhaps in our own orgiastic rites of ecstasy, we would like to say thank you to you all. I offer our profuse thanks. Thank you to everyone who listens to us. Thank you to everyone who backs us. And we have some special thanks to offer to new backers. When he says that orgiastic state, listeners, you don't see the expression on his face. Well, Paul, That's Paul's, the true scary thing. Paul's handing me a bucket, a bucket of grease at the minute, but I don't want any, Paul. I don't want any. <laughs> got to, I don't care what you on. three are doing. <laughs> We've all got it on already. Uh, yeah, you, we, you won't need the grease, Mike. <laughs> no, from the amount that you've got on Scott, I certainly won't. No. <laughs> on a hot day like this, it's all grease. So kicking off at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Kyla Cole-Megaro. Yep, well, thank you very much, Kyla. Indeed, thank you, Kyla. And then our thanks go out to Kevin Glazner. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, so thank you very much, Kevin. Indeed, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. And next, our thanks go out to Marty Dixon. So thank you very much, Marty. Thank you, Marty. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Marty. And thank you very much to Hector Gummies. Yep, thank you very much, Hector. Thank you, Hector. And thank you very much to Johnny Leafhead, who, yes, I've seen regularly on our Discord server. So, yes, thank you, Johnny. Hey, thank you, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. And also, our thanks go out to Ash Christians. So, thank you very much, Ash. Thank you, Ash. Yes, thank you very much, Ash. And thank you very much to Gene Mays. Yes, thank you, Gene. Hey, thank you, Gene. And now we move up to the $3 level where we not only say thanks, but we, we offer a toast and some cheers. Uh, and we are thanking and, and toasting Michael Gilbert. So, thank you very much and cheers, Michael. Indeed, cheers, Michael. Cheers, Michael. And kind of segueing into our next level, we've had someone rise from the weird, audible torture of the $5 level up to staggering heights of $20 to become... So you might say he's an ascended master now. Indeed. Indeed, ascended, A, kind of fits with the uh, the level he's taken Mm. there, of amazing Azathoth. 
So, the new Demon Sultan is Anthony Imes. All, ha all hail Anthony. Yeah, yes, yeah. Pra praise Anthony. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we, we are profoundly grateful, Anthony. Yes, as Matt said, this uh, takes us up to the $5 level where we sing our praises to two new backers today. The first of whom is Andrew Gibson. Yes, well, thank you very much, Andrew. We have such songs for you. Oh, boy. <laughs> Brace yourself, Andrew. Hope you like it. Andrew Gibson? Yeah, I know him. And we would also like to offer our profoundest thanks to Stefan Sarlin, and we hope what we're about to do to you brings you ecstasy. Stefan Sarlin, Stefan Sarlin. I call you forth, Stefan Sarlin. I conjure you and abjure you. Come in a pleasing form. No, 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 show not that form. Come forth, come forth, Stefan Sarlin. Come forth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Meanwhile, on social media, we've had a lovely review up on iTunes uh, from a British listener, um, pad underscore in underscore purgatory. Me go, you go, we all go. <laughs> Having uncovered the plotting of these three bickering cultists, I thought by listening and taking notes I could stop their evil machinations and slithery sinister schemes. But all I can think of now are the scratching noises and the pretty shapes dancing outside my window. The only questions I now have is, why is there a big black goat in my shed? <laughs> I thought that was going to say in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, there is the horror from the shed. I fear the end comes soon. Don't all sheds come with goats? Black Philip. Yeah, what do you want? Uh, the star uh, of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Pat and Perk, for you. I mean, we really do appreciate that. And we, we love getting reviews. I mean, not just because they, they help our fragile egos, but because they do help other innocent souls get exposed to the horrors of the good friends. And we've also had some feedback on our recent episode about the Carcosa mythos in other media. Uh, JB on Reddit says, You were discussing the pallid mask and the effects of putting it on. While I haven't read the stories that the Carcosa myth is originated from, it feels like the city is a stage. It was mentioned in passing a quote of a person fighting the mask being placed on them. No, no, don't place that mask on me. I took this as the final step of Carcosa claiming the individual, stripping them of their identity and creativity. Yeah, what do we think about that? The, the, the putting on the mask of, you know, stripping away the being the sort of final thing of the city claiming them. It is the, it's yeah. kind of a doom-laden thing, oh, not upon us, king, not upon us. It'd be certainly yeah. doom for you, Max. Put a mask in a scenario and you're the first to put it on. I was about to say, not only <laughs> did I put a certain mask on in a certain scenario, I then used it as a torture device to fuck up other cultists when they finally, <laughs> finally got into our clutches. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, utility mask. <laughs> and over on Discord, Irochima said, read the brief discussion of the Phantom of Truth. I have a distinct idea of who she is, but I can't recall if it's something I read or if I made it up. I believe she is a muse-like entity, likely a daughter of Hester, in the Carcosan dynastic genealogy, to divine descent. And then he followed that up by saying, uh, yeah, googling that uh, around various wikis, I'm not seeing any mention of this. I'm tempted to add to this explanation the, the now classic sourcing footnote, this was revealed to me in a dream. Mm. And he did actually provide a screenshot from a book where someone had put that in as a footnote. Mm. <laughs> All right, I thought you were going to say that he added a footnote with a screenshot of his dream. I mean, that would have been better. Oh, yeah, yes. In true yeah. Philip Gay Dick style. If any listeners want to send us screenshots of their dreams, um, well, actually, it depends on the dream, doesn't it? Have you had any truths revealed to you in dreams, Mike? Every night, Paul, as you well know. I can't, I can't talk about them. Oh, okay. Because that would reveal the secret things. Hmm. Scott knows all about them. The occult things. I, I do, yes. Evelyn Morrow 
on the hell that is called Discord. I'm <laughs> glad <laughs> it's not just me. Yeah, not, not just me either. Your idea about a legal court having to evaluate the king in yellow is really interesting. I can easily imagine the court slowly slipping into Kokosa and the scenarios involving some weird reality-distorted court rules and imageries. Kind of like an asylum, but you are stuck in a reality loop that always gets you back to the court case. Like the scenarios always take you back to a scene where you have to plead your case, but the scene gets modified by what happened in between the loops. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, kind of redolent of uh, Kafka's The Trial then. And, yeah, it's, it's not a parallel that I considered. But I suppose the sort of surrealism and, and existential horror of Kafka probably actually maps surprisingly well. I think, well yeah, I think it maps pretty really well in the whole concept of being caught in a time loop, time repeating, um, I think fits well with that kind of whole Carcosa thing. I'm sure it wouldn't be really annoying as a player to have to keep going through a time loop, would it, Paul? No, that wouldn't annoy <laughs> In me any way. No, no, I think it would make some pretty good scenarios, perhaps. And also over on Discord, uh, Daniel Carroll says, Is it fair to say that Do You Read Sutter Kane was a riff on Have You Seen the Yellow Sign? I love In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we probably should do an episode on that at some stage. Yeah, yeah, apart yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from anything else, just so I can spend half an hour ranting about how it's plagiarised. Oh, well, we, we've done one part of the Apocalypse Trilogy, so why not follow it up with the other two? Yeah. <laughs> what, are we going to do Prince of Darkness? I'd love to. I'd say Prince of Darkness is a great film. film. Yeah. It's a great film. What have you got in your basement? Satan. <laughs> The great I mean, that's, a, that's not an elevator pitch for a great film. I don't know what we're so, so, so you, you've got a, a black goat out in the shed and you've got Satan in your basement. I mean, there's a film. Isn't Satan it, in all our basements, though? Just that line, the great god plutonium can't save you now. <laughs> <laughs> and to wrap up, let's have a few final thoughts about the occult. So we've talked about Lovecraft denying any belief in the occult and being a complete materialist what about the four of us let's go, quickly go around I mean, what's your opinion Matt do you give any credence to the occult yeah I'd say certain aspects of it yes uh -huh. um, I wouldn't say that it's all true it's all out there it's all accurate no I think there's at least in my mind there's enough not evidence per se but there's enough strength behind certain arguments that I'd be willing to give it uh, some credence yeah do you want to nail one down Oh boy, um, particularly things like demons, angels, I wouldn't say necessarily that they exist, but there's a certain phenomena that could they could put that label on them, whether it's parts of them themselves they're communing with, or whether it's they're seeing something else through a particular lens. I think there's, there's something behind that. There's, yeah, I'd say there's other maybe entities or such that we can make contact with, but what they are exactly, hell knows. But, I think you're talking machine elves, Matt. Well, there you go, yeah. It's a lot of ayahuasca in your coffee. Well, I've got to put something in to take the, to take the edge off. Scott, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I spent a lot of my 20s practising ritual magic of various forms. And I, at the same time, I don't actually believe in anything supernatural. Uh, for me, the whole idea of magic was about tapping into different parts of my consciousness. I, I guess in a lot of ways, it's not too different from what Alistair Crowley believed. There's a, a story about him having spoken to one of his followers at some stage, describing, you know, I, I think it was in terms of the Abramelum working, and the, the whole idea of gaining the, the knowledge and conversation of one's holy guardian angel. And he was trying to explain to this follower that, you know, th there aren't really any angels, that there isn't necessarily a force beyond ourselves but what we're trying to get in contact with is a much higher part of our mind part that is perhaps more connected with the wider universe that provides us new perspectives new ways of seeing things and i suppose that is much more my take on the occult that it's a series of often very muddled practices that are used to transform human consciousness i think the occult is a very broad term and it is an umbrella to a lot of mm. very wholesome to unwholesome and strange and bizarre beliefs and practices, some of which um, are hokum and some of which I'm, I'm interested in. Um, in terms of, if you want to broaden that out in terms of, you know, what, what your perception or experiences are, then um, I have experienced different things that would maybe fall under the umbrella of the occult in different ways. And so um, 
my perception is I have experienced things that I cannot explain. Um, I can rationalise them in terms of frames of reference. For instance, I could say, I think I've seen a ghost. That is my frame of reference. And that doesn't mean I believe in ghosts, but I'm using a common mm-hmm. term of reference that everyone understands what I'm saying when I say I've seen a ghost. I have heard a ghost and I've seen a ghost and I've experienced one. To, so, to other degrees of... Um, um, magical practice I have seen uh, magical practice and I have seen magical practice work I don't when, know when, when, I don't know whether that means magic works or not but I have seen a result requested I have seen a, re- a result gained okay can you substantiate that or not no because it's because it, we're dealing with things that aren't substantial no no but I mean when you say you saw it work I'm just kind of wondering what you mean yeah, but I'm not going into the details. Fair enough. Okay. But that doesn't, you, that doesn't actually mean I believe all magic works. Hmm. I'm telling you, in my frame of reference, I have seen things. I have seen things. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. All right. I've yet to explain some of them. How hmm. about you, Paul? I think I'm probably with Lovecraft. I think people have an innate draw towards a sense of wonder about the universe. So they look for things that they can't explain and things that go beyond you know what science can explain because it gives you a sense of wonder and we love that and i think that's one of the draws of role-playing games is that we get this sense of wonder playing D or call of cthulhu or considering it might be the christian heaven or jesus or the occult or demons or or anything and i think it's just every culture we look at we see a draw to something other this sense of wonder and i think to me that's what it's all based in and i don't give credence to it i think i think that's a really valid point i think the the whole point of human existence is we search for what we don't know and sometimes we call that a cult or sometimes we call that going to the moon well until next time when we delve further into the occult it's a goodbye from me cheerio from me and a farewell from me tra-la-la from me Blasphemoustomes.com God's sake, put your trousers on.